Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I am fortunate to still be Eunice Elliott, the black one. And I'm still fortunate to have more black folks come and spend some time with me here on the podcast, educate us, enlighten us, inform us, inspire us. And this is a friend of the program at this point, Dr. Gloria J. Wilson, Assistant Professor of Art and Visual Culture Education at the University of Arizona. Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for joining us again. Absolutely, Eunice. I am glad to be back. And you're not just back. You're back with gifts and and presents. <laughs> you have gifted us with this amazing new project you're working on. And when you sent over the information about it, it was one of those things where I've never heard of anything like this, but it makes perfect sense that this would need to exist. So can you please tell us about the Racial Justice Studio? Sure. Uh, so the Racial Justice Studio has uh, recently uh, officially made uh, its public appearance uh, just this past January, but the the concept was born uh, following the murder of George Floyd. And so I am co-director of this project, uh, along with my colleagues, uh, Dr. Amy Cray, who is also here at the University of Arizona, and Chelsea Farrar, who is Director of Community Engagement at the uh, university's museum, the University of Arizona Museum of Art. And so it, it initially was conceived of as a four-part series um, of speaker dialogues situated uh, within the School of Art and within art education to uh, sort of address the topic of anti-Black racism. And so it, it started as a small uh, grant proposal uh, for funding offered here within the College of Fine Arts. Uh, but our dean, uh, Dr. Andy Schultz noticed the proposal and decided that this sort of work needed to be amplified much larger than we were conceiving of it. And so since last, I would say last May, May or the beginning of June, um, this racial justice studio has been kind of an incubation, you know, almost like a baby. Mm -hmm. So it's taken about eight or nine months for it to gestate and become, you know, this amplified uh, version of a speaker series. So there are three, three types of programming that happen within Racial Justice Studio. And we really wanted to mobilize and amplify arts vocabulary. And those three uh, programs are rehearsals and anti-racism, which which is is going to be uh, a full-blown course starting in the fall of this year. 
And so it's for uh, it's designed for students who are interested in work in anti-racism um, in the arts. And so I think that's the important part to remember is that the arts are made central. And it's also a, a place uh, where research can take place. And so students uh, specifically within the College of Fine Art, within the School of Art and across the university are are offered this course and will be able to enroll. We're keeping the enrollment low to begin with since it's sort of a pilot course uh, and we're capping it at 16. Um, but that's just one of the three programs. The other two, one is called uh, Creative Abolitionist Teaching Fellows. And so we're offering um, the space for teachers in secondary environments within the Tucson area, the opportunity to have a space to do this work also. And so they don't necessarily need to be in the arts, but it's a it's it's another incubation space to think with notions of anti-racism and how the arts um, are also implicated in racist structures and working a, toward a way to dismantle um, dismantle these structures and also how they might bring these these strategies into the classroom and into their curriculum. And so it's designed for both teachers who are already already involved in the work, but also teachers who who are wanting to be allies and wanting to be co-conspirators. If we we've grabbed the the language that Bettina Love, who's at the University of Georgia, is using. And then the final strand of programming um, is called Hang on just a second. Why is it escaping me? Um, so we've got rehearsals, we have the Cat Network, and we have Race Remix, which is a more traditional speaker series, which um, activates the voice of a person in the arts and brings in the voice of a person who's not in the arts so that we can have a really multidisciplinary look at structures of racism and strategies of anti-racist practice. I know I've said a lot. Well, no, I was going to say, wow, well, I have like 15 questions from, from all that you said. The first thing is when you talk about this being a, a baby that, you know, you, you all collaborated on, what is it like to have your dean basically say, Hey, you have a gorgeous baby. <laughs> let's, let's put this baby on the, on the, on the bottle. You know, what is it like to have the academic and administrative support for a, a pilot program like this? I really, I really, really appreciate that question, Eunice, because it is, it, is, as you said, I believe in the beginning, uh, an initiative that is one of a kind, really. We know that it's one of a kind in the state of Arizona, but as we've been involved in the arts and education, uh, Dr. Amy Cray and I, for over 20 years, we believe that it's one of a kind within our field and within the country to place the arts directly in the center of these strategies. Uh, of, of, you know, unpacking racism, deploying strategies, uh, toward anti-racist practices. Um, and so to have, to have administrative support at the level of the dean is what I'm understanding unprecedented. I have colleagues who are in other, other programs such as public health or, you know, or education who, who have centers like this. Um, and I'm not calling it a center right now. It's an initiative. We're still trying to find language for what this, what this really is. And it, it has just been, 
it's just been a gem to have the support of our leadership. Um, you know, at the school level, my director is in full support of it. And also uh, to have the funding to launch such an initiative, because we know what we know is how cultures are produced and sustained is economics. If we just pull back the curtain, we know that in order to amplify something and, and for lack of a better way of thinking of it, really institutionalize it, we know that money uh, is what helps to support the human capital that it takes to make a program, a multi-program initiative like this run. So when you talk about a first of its kind program, and and we'll go ahead and call it a center because I see it being a standalone place that everyone in the world comes to, to have these experiences, to be educated, to be enlightened and inspired. But when you talk about being a doctor of the arts, I'm thinking about when we talk about social change, social justice, I think more of, you know, criminal justice, sociology, more different disciplines outside of the arts. But as you mentioned on a previous episode, so much of the perception and perpetuation of racism has been communicated through the arts. I remember you were talking about Birth of a Nation and how that was one of the first Black people on screen and was the villain. And that's been perpetuated for hundreds of years since. I recently saw a video of people in Asia talking about their perception of Black people and they only had what they had consumed through media. And a lot of it was stereotypical. A lot of it was negative. But they had never been around black people, but they're watching what were the, the arts. They're consuming the arts. And so they were sharing what they felt. So I think even though it's a one of a kind program, it seems like the most obvious place to start. It really does, Eunice, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. It really it, does. Yeah. But they are not starting there. So when you put this program together, it makes perfect sense. Sure. And so in, in the logics of, of thinking about how culture or how visual culture gets produced and those narratives constructed in visual culture, how they get advanced and shared out broadly, globally. It's sort of like the person who is not self-reflective and maybe uh, is out in the world causing harm to other people without being conscious of that. And so when we think about the arts, you know, as being institutionalized, as being supported um, with the economies of whiteness or the economies of, of actual, you know, currency that we exchange with one another, I imagine it's difficult to be self-reflective if one is not willing to be self-reflective, you know, right. first to be called out on it. And secondly, to start to take action for self-reflection and then address the problematic characteristics of oneself, uh, of the culture, of the institution, of the arts across the board, the arts as different modalities. So we think of um, ballet, we think of classical music, we think of the general canon of visual art and those are all things that have a very specific way of existing in the world. You know, we think of orchestra when it comes to music and we think of those forms of the arts that are canonized so that when students come into a learning space, that those are the forms 
that are amplified. And for instance, if you're a black student and you're in dance and you're choosing ballet, what sort of tights are you requested to buy to cover your legs with? And if only recently within the last five years, you have the option to choose tights that match your skin tone rather than them being sort of like the flesh color crayon in the box that Crayola used to produce, uh, then you don't, you don't even understand how you're internalizing a whiteness ideology. Well, and that's the thing when you talk about self-reflection, I think since the murder of George Floyd last May, I don't know how much has it been self-reflection versus, you know, reflection being offered, a mirror being set up saying, okay, this has always been the case. This was not the first time this happened. This uh, sadly is probably not the last time this will happen. It was the first time we had a pandemic that sat us down. And for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we could not look away. So when you talk about that self-reflective nature that the world and particularly America does not tend to have, that was the first glimpse into, well, maybe that's offensive. Maybe that's racist. And, And the question is, most of whether it's a nursery rhyme, whether it's Dr. Seuss, whether it's so much that we grew up on. And so then people who aren't self-reflective say they're trying to take everything away from us. And the self-reflective people will say, well, OK, I never realized that was the root of that. I am sorry. How can we get to that place where we just accept, hey, that's where we were and we're looking to be somewhere else without the defensiveness and the, they're trying to take everything away from us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a process. I think of other processes that one has to move through in order to get to a place uh, where there's acceptance of the reality of a condition, so to speak. So I think of a 12 step program, for instance, and, and you know, by no means do I um, know the nuances of what happens in, in those types of programs. But I think, OK, 12 steps. So there's a number. There's a number that we can sort of hang on to and and grapple with. And I'm not quite sure, as I think about it now, that even that sort of strategy has been laid out to to have the conversation, to start the conversation so that the person sitting opposite of the race conversation doesn't sit with the defensiveness forever. Uh I think that we have to acknowledge that it is uncomfortable there are those of us who who are oriented toward blackness, whether it is by skin tone, whether it is by phenotype and the way that our bodies look and the way that our faces are structured. We have been we have been under a state of discomfort for as long as we probably can remember. And so when we think of those who have more Eurocentric features who are lighter skin. I'm, I'm thinking recently with the Meghan Markle interview. Uh, and that's noticed, what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that there, there are hot debates in, in comment threads on all types of social media platforms about her adjacency to blackness, for instance, and whether or not she has claimed a black identity. And, and I think that if one is not exposed to certain forms of traumatic occurrences, then why would one 
have the same level of consciousness as that person who experiences it daily, whether it's a microaggression, an aggression, or a macroaggression. You know what's interesting when you talk about Black adjacent, and even in the example of Meghan Markle, the, the two things were based on what you were saying just now is she probably is as close to Eurocentric looking as almost possible right. with a Black mother that we have seen. And so then when I look at the current situation or the situation with her husband, I liken it very similar to what I think of Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden experienced a black adjacent experience by being Barack Obama's vice president. And so things that he saw and experienced by being adjacent to him, he never would have experienced in his lifetime. And I feel the same thing for Prince Harry. It's I'm in a bubble. I'm white. I'm royalty. But what I have seen by being adjacent to a black person's experience is mind blowing. And and that's the problem is most people are not adjacent to the black experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the similar phenomenon that I have heard about uh, through some white students that I've taught over the years that their family uh, had been inherently racist and prejudiced against Black people until, until someone in the family had a baby with a Black person. And then it's interesting to see those orientations shift, you know, because there is this human in the world that shares the DNA of the family and How in the world can you deny loving that human, that which is part of you? And so it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting event that needs to occur in order for some people to make that shift. And so I think when you speak about Joe Biden, um, I think when you speak about uh, Prince Harry and, and how they have maybe come to a different level of race race consciousness mm-hmm. by existing and working with or communing and unioning with a black person it it becomes a different conversation and and it's not just some one off i sat in class next to a black person it's right. not that you know i work you know one or two shifts at my job with a black person it is a consistent interaction and a consistent adjacency. Joe Biden spent eight years next to not only Barack Obama, but Michelle Obama and the Obama children. And I imagine that there is nuance that happens across time with those, with those experiences. Right. And not only just the nuance of the experiences of the relationship and the proximity, but I'm sure Joe Biden saw things happen to that particular black man that he knows would never happen in Congress, you know, in the House. You know, he has been around long enough to know the bureaucracy and what happens. But then that was a different brand that when Barack Obama was elected and Mitch McConnell said, I will make sure nothing he ever proposes passes like at the beginning you know and so i feel like not only the relationship he formed he got to see racism 
It was it was going past his face and hitting Barack Obama, but it was like, oh, wow, that's what that looks like up close. And what's sad is most situations in life, people don't understand them until they experience them. And most white people will never experience black. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's undeniable when you see it happening. And of course, we have those who will try to spin the story every single time, right? The optics of it are undeniable. You know, it was undeniable, like you said, at the very beginning of his presidency, that he, he, folks were already strategizing to disagree with anything and everything he laid out in terms of policy change, simply, even though it wasn't named, simply because of the optics of a black person having the most powerful position in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we see how how it's embedded in the psyche so deeply that one would not name that as a racist act, but yet put put a different spin on it. And, and there are any number of reasons that you and I have both heard that I can't mm-hmm. conjure up in my mind right now because I, I tend to think of those things as distractions. Right. Oh, for sure. Right. In the work that, you know, if, if I paid attention uh, and if we all did, if we all paid attention to those clapbacks, uh, those denials, those refusals of accepting what has become a living, breathing organism of racism, then we wouldn't be able to do the work that, that we're doing. You would not be focused on a podcast that centers the experiences and the articulations and the theories and all of these things that that black people are engaged with, right? I would not be able to mindfully conceive of an initiative such as the Racial Justice Studio if I were distracted by all of that chaos, which right. we we had a lot of the last four the last four years, right. Right. Beyond chaos. And, and that's what's interesting about racism as a construct in that black folks can't end racism, but the people that can end racism tend to want to debate what's racist. <laughs> it's like and so it does become a distraction and it does become counterproductive and it's not self-reflective. It's all those things. So when someone comes to the racial justice project, I want to talk about the term you use, black a Black academic. Okay. <laughs> Talk to me about when you are conceptualizing this project, uh, black academic, you have a doctoral gown. I mean, people are listening to us, but tell us about as this new initiative, this program at the University of Arizona is paint the picture for us in our mind's eye of what this is when it's when when this when those 16 students come. Sure. And so what I would say is the Black Academic Project was a very personal story for me, uh, narrating my experiences within a tenure track position in higher education. Someone, uh, someone shared with me a book in grad school that later would become important again when I started uh, a position in higher education um, called the, the Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul. And Carrie Lockmore uh, is the uh, scholar who, you know, has advanced uh, this important work. And I thought about the things that were laid out in that book and the troubles and challenges that black faculty experience that white faculty don't experience. For instance, it's no different in any other 
in any other profession, and it, it has its nuances in higher education. And so what that meant is that um, faculty, uh, black faculty have higher service requests because there are fewer in number at the university level, uh, at least in historically white universities. Uh, another term that has, has been used for those universities is predominantly white. I do really enjoy um, the notion of a historically white university because that makes us think differently about it and it just registers differently, right? Because it could be predominantly white and I'm just imagining that, that there are HBCUs who have a large population of white students, white faculty also. I don't know the, the numbers uh, in terms of demographics, but historically white university. Uh, and so it, it's not a secret that black faculty have different sort of challenges within a tenure track structure. It's, it's no surprise, given the work that Carrie Ann Rockamore has done with the Black uh, Academics Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul, it's no surprise that our work is scrutinized differently and so if you don't have a committee that's evaluating you through an equity lens, then your chances of getting tenure become diminished. Mm -hmm. And so really I was grappling with the notion that I, my research centers blackness as an experience, uh, as an identity. I was grappling with how my experience on the tenure track might look based against the institution that's going to evaluate my research and my teaching uh, and, and also my service as a black academic. And so what I decided to do was I decided to merge my questions about that along with my art making practice of making garments. And so I went back to my experience as a grad student to um, that was interested in making my doctoral gown that I never had the chance to do when I was a grad student. And I decided, oh, this might be a great time to make that doctoral gown. And so as I was teaching, you know, in my spare time, I would I would pull together a doctoral gown. And for anyone who has seen it, uh, I believe I have pictures of it on my website. It, it's not the traditional black garment. It's it's um, a natural color cotton. And so that sort of leans into, you know, an artistic mode of thinking. But the importance of the making of the doctoral gown is I wanted to situate it within the notion of uh, power and who constructs culture. And so me as the garment maker, I got to make the doctoral gown of my choice. And so I take the reader through the journey of sewing vocabulary. So for instance, marking the fabric, and I place that next to how our bodies are marked racially. Or I took the notion of measuring, like measuring the fabric to make sure that you get the proper fit. Uh, and the fact that our racial battle fatigue cannot be measured no matter how how much um, qualitative research you stack against it, no matter how much quantitative, it's not visibly able to be articulated. So we can look at health statistics. We can look at educational statistics as it relates to Black people. But the articulation of fatigue, we can't really measure that, really. I think of the notion of pinning the fabric, meaning that race has been pinned in so many ways, even though it's flexible, it still gets pinned down. When we look at the instances of the murder of Breonna Taylor, 
um, when we look at instances of inequity um, and the video of Sandra Bland, when we think of Trayvon Martin, there is a specific pinning and a specific strategy that happens in order for people who are otherwise minding their own business to eventually meet their demise, you know, at the hands of some larger force. And oftentimes it's the hands of, uh, you know, institutions that carry weapons that that we imagine as being those institutions that will protect us. Uh, and so I also use the vocabulary of pressing, like pressing at the seams, you know, as a garment maker, you sort of press the seams. And what happens is the garment transforms. And when we're pressed, when we suffer microaggressions, right. our body even though, you know, it's it's sort of fixed in space, we get pressed in a way that we're never the same again. And so what, what I'm hoping after saying all of that with um, Racial Justice Studio, I, I'm hoping that it is a place where students can begin the process of understanding systems of power and how those systems then create culture culture as it race is included as a socio cultural construct that they can begin to reflect as we talked about before reflect on what this notion of whiteness is uh and how it infiltrates even even in the unseemingly in unseemingly visible ways and in 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 and through the use of the arts, if that makes sense. It does make sense. You have a way of taking your artistic mind and and marrying it, hemming it together, if I will, to use a sewing term. I love that. I love <laughs> these that. concepts. And so when I imagine the the racial justice project and everything you you're saying, you know, I do believe that you know, in the way that you view the world through an artistic lens, that that is the way we will change the world more than likely sooner rather than later. How can we find out more uh, about the project, the launch? I mean, obviously we can't enroll in the class, but how can we kind of see what's going on from, from afar? Sure, absolutely. Uh, and maybe there it, there will be a way, you know, as the, the project grows and extends, that there will be a way to offer uh, coursework virtually, you know, we're, we're in a virtual moment now, um, but hopefully we'll be in person very soon. Uh, but who knows, uh, with the expansion of the project, uh, it, it was a, a project that, um, was promised funding for three years by our Dean. And so we are so appreciative of that, which just speaks to his level of commitment to the longevity mm-hmm. of it. Um, but you can find out more about, uh, the racial justice studio if you connect um, to the University of Arizona. You can Google Racial Justice Studio and it will take you to a page for now uh, where uh, there there was a first press release, which I think I shared with you. I also uh, leave traces of um, and, and pass through uh, my website, my own website, uh, GloriaJWilson.com. Uh, and right now we're working on on structuring a space for Racial Justice Studio to live so that folks can, you know, click on a link through the university website and be taken directly to all the types of programming that we're offering. Uh, we're, we're inviting, you know, really key speakers um, to come and participate. 
those who are in the arts and those who aren't in the arts. And so it's just an exciting time. I'd say, I'll say it's just really new and fresh right now. Uh, and so we're, we're uh, as the dean would like to say, we're building the plane as we fly it. And that's both scary. You know what? Someone said that to me in a meeting last week. I promise you, it, it was very uh, apropos for for the situation as well. Sure, <laughs> sure. Your project sounds more fun because I'm not I'm not on that particular plane. <laughs> the one I'm on. Um, so, Dr. Wilson, I want to congratulate you on what you've accomplished so far. I know as um, as a student and as a teacher and professor and as a member of academia, it's one of those things that you have an appreciation for history, but you also are creating it. So congratulations um, for what this is about to be. And it's super exciting. And I just love that you allow us to have access to you here on the history of being black. You've been a guest before and you know, we like to challenge our listeners to action items and to hashtag being the change. Uh, what could you offer us uh, today that, you know, if we were not at the University of Arizona, we're not one of the, the blessed 16 to, to be in this pilot program. What, what can we do? Absolutely. So uh, maybe I could leave you with um, what the Racial Justice Studio has put forward um, as our five rules of engagement uh, that are agreed upon as pillars that will support the work that the Racial Justice Studio aims to do. And so those five rules of engagement are one, uh, the principle of endemic anti-Blackness is a commitment to centering race, anti-Black racism and the relationship between the arts and white supremacy rooted in anti-Blackness. Engagement number two, the principle of justice as a process, which recognizes that racial justice is not an endpoint, but instead a lifelong process carried out in innumerable everyday actions and decisions. Uh, rule of engagement number three, the principle of non-exploitation, which means that we will not ask BIPOC people to do work without compensating them fairly for their labor. So BIPOC meaning B-I-P-O-C, Black, Indigenous, people of and people of color. Uh, number four, the principle of accountability, which requires that racial justice be linked to outcomes and impact and not goodwill or best intentions. That's different. And number five, the principle of timelessness, which holds that racism is endemic, enduring and evolving and thus rejects any treatment of racism as timely or on trend. So you've given this some thought. <laughs> <laughs> I've given it a little bit of thought. So listen, you said you were talking about a 12-step program. I think you got the first five steps right there. Maybe so. Maybe Changing so. Changing the world. Changing the world. I think those are the first five steps. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson, for, for blessing us with that. Um, really encouraging and inspiring to know that not only are people out here conceptualizing and doing the work, also is being supported financially and at major universities. And that's where we start, education. And, 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 and I pray that it, it spreads. Thank you so much again, Dr. Wilson, for being a guest and a friend of the History of Being Black. Thank you all so much for listening to the History of Being Black. And we will talk to you all next time. Take care. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.